You're listening to Market Champions, a podcast on navigating the financial markets. Here's your host, Shabas Prakash. This episode of Market Champions is brought to you by Simplify ETFs. For more information, go to simplify.us. No Simplify ETFs will be discussed in this episode. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Market Champions. Today I've got my friend Jim Bianco. Jim is the president and founder of Bianco Research based in Chicago, Illinois. Jim, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. Jim, so let's start off by telling... Um, so, you know, one, one thing that I'm really interested about is sort of your background, you know, how you got into finance and economics and sort of economic research. So, you know, could you give the audience a bit about, uh, you know, your journey within the finance, within the finance and economic research industry you know, and how you got to where you are? Yeah. So, um, I, I'm from Chicago. Uh, if you're familiar with the, uh, uh, Chicago, the, the big futures exchanges are here. I had some relatives that were involved with the futures exchanges. And so I didn't do anything with it, but I became aware of it. And I kind of got the bug on financial markets uh, through them. I went to school at Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, I graduated with a degree in finance and uh, I studied the financial markets. I took classes on futures and options and portfolio management. (laughs) And I moved into various jobs within the financial community, um, eventually winding up in 1987, 35 years ago, wow, a long time ago, uh, working for Shearson Lehman Brothers, uh, precursor of the Lehman Brothers, during the stock market crash of 87. And soon thereafter, I moved over to First Boston in the equity research department as an assistant uh, right after the 87 crash. Uh, eventually rising through those ranks. We then moved over. The guy I worked with was a guy named Joe Generalis. We moved over then and uh, to UBS Securities. And then in 1990, 32 years ago, uh, one of my clients or one of our clients was Arbor Research and Trading in Chicago. And they wooed me to come work for them. And through 1990 and 1998, I was their director of research. I might also add, I was the only person in the research department. So I got to name myself the director. Uh, and then in 1998, uh, we spun me off into Bianco Research. That <clears throat> partnership is now 24 years old. Uh, Arbor is still my partner. Uh, a lot of the same people that were there in 1990 are still my partners to, to this day. Wow. Uh, I, own, I own some of Arbor. Arbor owns um, some of me. And so we've been doing that. They Arbor is a fixed in, institutional fixed income shop. So they have customers, largely fixed income, but not exclusively. Um, we have offices not only in Chicago, but in New York City, in London um, as well. And so we've got customers all over the world. I've got customers in Asia. I've got customers in Europe. I actually have a pretty good business in Canada as well, too. <clears throat> and we've got customers in the United States. And Naturally, since I said there we're a fixed income institutional fixed income shop, even though we're located in Chicago, a lot of our customers are in places you would suspect they would be in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, San Francisco, 
all the, in addition to Chicago, all the large uh, financial uh, centers that, in the country. Got it. Got it. No, that's, 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 uh, <clears throat> that, no, that's very cool. Cause you know, you got started in sort of the, the heyday of wall street in a way, um, you know, the 1980s, 1990s. And, you know, it's, it's, it's very cool. Um, you know, I, you know to... I, I might add, I might add that when I got started on, when I got started in this journey um, in the eighties um, you know, that was Michael Lewis liars poker. The big place you wanted to be was bonds. Yeah. Yeah. That's where all the big hitters were. And if you remember, the book came out, I think, in 1986. And it was about him being in the uh, management training program at Solomon Brothers. And they used to they used to say that, you know, when you went through the management training program, you got assigned to certain groups. And the bottom of the heap was what they called equities in Dallas. You didn't want to be in the equity department in Dallas. That was the worst. You wanted to be in New York in the bond department. It turns out if you fast forward into the 90s and 2000s, equities in Dallas was probably the best place to be because that was where you got to cover all the big hedge funds. Uh, and so we seem to be going full circle now. And all of a sudden in 2022, the bond market, after being in the doldrums forever and ever, is now becoming interesting. more interesting again. It's There's actually a yield to have in bonds. And it is actually impacting a lot of other things instead of being this zero interest sleepy corner that everybody wants to ignore. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think, you know, I completely agree. So, you know, bonds were sort of zombified for sort of the last decade. And, you know, you're, you're, you're sort of seeing them come back to life now. So and now, you know, full circle, um, as you mentioned, you know, we're back to seeing bonds becoming um, very interesting and sort of the macro um, outlook also becoming very interesting to watch. So, you know, so, you know, just on that note, you know, let's get started by talking a bit about, you know, your broad thesis around, you know, inflation and what's going to happen or say the next decade. And, you know, you're, you're sort of you're sort of your idea has been that, you know, inflation is not going to come back down to 2% or the one and a half percent that we've experienced um, in the last, say, 10 years. But, you know, we're going to see, you know, we're going to see inflation come down to say about a three and a half, four percent level. So slightly elevated. But, you know, it's not um, it's not, you know, one of those crazy people who's saying, you know, it's going to be 10 percent year after year um, forever. It's going to be about three and a half, four percent. So, you know, could you talk a bit about, you know, why you think that, you know, and sort of, uh, you know, how you came to that, how you came to that conclusion? Yeah. So um, I think that the cycle ended in 2020. Uh, not only is it clear that the interest rate cycle ended because the, you know, the high yield and let me back up, bond yields tend to move in big 30 to 40 year cycles. There was a low in yields in um, 1920. There was a high in yields. I'm sorry, I, I got that backwards. There was a high in yields in 1920. There was a low in yields in 1946. So you had a 26 year uh, decline or bull market in bonds. And then from 46 to 81, you had a 35 year advance in bonds and they peaked at 15% in 1981. And I think that then you had a 39-year bull market in bonds where they went from 15% down to, let's take the 10-year note, half a percent in uh, 2020, in August of 2020. That 39-year cycle ended. And I think it ended largely because of the pandemic. History has shown that pandemics are very important turning points in human history. And what they do is they don't change anything in human history they speed things up. So as we talk about some of these other things that I think are coming along the way, you know, the end of cheap labor, the end of cheap goods, the end of cheap energy, 
All of this was going to happen in 20 or 30 years. And now it's happened in two. And I think that that's really what we have to get. And that's typical of what you see coming out of a pandemic and the big shutdown of the economy and the reopening. And I think that we have to now understand that we are in a new cycle altogether. And that cycle is going to bring about higher levels of inflation, higher levels of interest rates, and by transitory property, probably lower multiples in markets over time. Uh, and so we've, you know, we're still struggling to get our, our head around this because it's been so fast and it's been so quick. But I do think that, yes, as you pointed out, I think the long run average of inflation is not 2% or 1% to 2% like it was in the 15 years before the pandemic, but it's three plus or minus 50 basis points. So call it two and a half to three and a half or something. The point there is don't get me, don't pin me down on those exact numbers, materially higher than it was pre pandemic. That means that interest rates at around 4%, the Fed likes to believe, and I think the Fed's right, that neutral interest rates, about a half a percent or so above the inflation rate. Inflation rates, three plus or minus 50 basis points. And you have a 4% 10 year note. Um, we're just at neutral or maybe just slightly above neutral. We are not at a restrictive rate that is to come later on in this cycle. And when we go to a, when we go back to a less restrictive rate, that might only be in the three handles or the low three handles or the high twos. Gone are the days of negative interest rates in Europe and Japan. Gone are the days of one handles in the US unless we have a giant collapse in the economy. And then that would only be cyclical that you'd get down that low. In other words, when the economy recovered, rates would go right back up. Yeah, yeah, I know that makes sense. And so, you know, let's so you know, one of the things that the Fed has made clear, uh, at least over the last year once they shifted to the hawk uh once they shifted to becoming hawks and dropped the transitory narrative was that if inflation persisted above two percent you know they they're sort of willing to do anything and everything to force it lower and so you know ideally you know in a world where say inflation prints come out come out at say three and a half percent or four percent do you, do you think you know how do you think the fed would react in that sort of a situation do you think they're still going to uh do you think jay powell or whoever the fed chair is is going to still um, come in and say raise rates and force it down below 2%. Do you think there's going to be sort of a mandate shift where they're happy to allow um, a little bit above 2%? So say um, they shift their, they shift the rate up to say three plus or minus 50 basis points. Or, you know, how do, how do you think the Fed reaction mechanism changes um, in that sort of a scenario? Well, first of all, let me back up a quick moment about the Fed itself. Um they have not articulated what it is that they want or what it is that they believe. Now, to be clear, they do articulate all the time, you know, Jay Powell's eight minute speech in Jackson Hole in August, we're not going to pivot. Uh, they do they do give speeches about what they suspect that the funds rate will do at the November 2nd meeting or the September 21st meeting. It's going to go up by 75 basis points. But <clears throat> missing in this discussion is, what is your long-term view? Do you still think that inflation is, is still the neutral long-run rate of inflation is 2%? Or do you think it's more like three or four? And I've argued that I think the reason that they don't give that speech is they don't agree. I My guess is Jay Powell, maybe Chris Waller, maybe 
um, Jim Bullard of the San Francisco, uh, St. Louis Fed, excuse me, they believe that inflation is more persistent at around 3%. I think that Leo Brainerd, the staff of the Fed, maybe Mary Daly, San Francisco Fed, Charlie Evans of the Chicago Fed, do not. They think this is an artifact. This 8% inflation we see now is an artifact of reopening the economy. It is in the process of peaking and it's in the process of falling. I agree. I think it is in the process of peaking. I think it is in the process of falling. They think all the way back under 2%, I think it stops at around three or four. So I think to start off that, let's just make the point here that the Fed has not yet articulated what their long-term view is. And I largely think it, it is because they don't agree. But at the end of the day, the way the Fed works, Jay Powell thinks it's, uh, this is my guess again, Jay Powell thinks it's persistent. Jay Powell thinks it's high, although he hasn't articulated a long-term view. So therefore, everybody else salutes that view and they go out and they sell it because that's the way the Fed works. I think, by the way, as in a tangent, that's a terrible way for the Fed to work. They should work more like the Supreme Court. Everybody should be independent to come up with their own views, argue their own views. It's not wait for Could you imagine the, the outrage in this country if the Supreme Court justice turned to the other eight justices in the Supreme Court and said, here's how we're going to vote on this issue. Um, but that's essentially the way that the Fed works and that they shouldn't, but that's the way they do. And that's why I think all they can agree on at this point is what they're going to do at the next meeting. They're going to raise 75 basis points. Why? Because that's what Jay Powell wants. Well, what's the larger issue beyond that? Oh, something about inflation expectations, not getting entrenched and falling. Well, how do they get entrenched? Why do they get entrenched? What is raising rates going to do to stop them from being entrenched? What is the fear if you don't raise rates fast enough that they would be entrenched? This is all, what is your long-term view is what I'm trying mm -hmm. to ask. They don't answer that question because I don't think they agree on it just yet. And so, and so, you know, without making that clear, you know, it becomes very hard to tell how the Fed would react in that sort of a situation. Um, and, and, you know, and, and, you know, one of the things that we see, and so, you know, you pointed out how um, historically speaking, you know, pandemics have been, turning points in human history. One of the sort of shifts that we've seen that's been big has been the shift from, um, and Russell Clark um, has pointed this out repeatedly, um, has been the shift from pro-capital policies that we've seen over, say, the last 10, 20, 30 years um, to, pro, to more pro-labor policies. And, you know, what I mean by this is one, we've, so we saw a lot of, we saw a lot of, um, you know, stimulus checks given out in, uh, the aftermath of the pandemic. And then um, in addition to that, you know, we're also starting to see a lot of rising wages, especially for the lower end of um, lower end of the wage spectrum. And so you now do, do you think this sort of trend is sustained um, consider, uh, you know, you know, all things considered? Yes, I do. And I do agree with him that we are seeing a definite shift to pro, pro labor policies. Uh, just two quick anecdotes for you. Uh, there's a the freight union, the union of um, uh, of engineers that move uh, freight trains, almost went on strike, and then they and then their leadership agreed to a contract, which was then voted down by the rank and file, and they are now in limbo about what they're going to do. What was never in contention was the wage increase. That is 14% immediate, 24% over five years. But what is in contention is work, work rules. That to them, they're willing to strike not over more money. They, they're, they're happy with the money, but the difficulty of the job and the work rules around the job. Same thing with the, 
uh, West Coast Longshoremen's Union, they've agreed many months ago to the wage increase. They're arguing over work rules. This is a sign that there's a shift. Before, everything was about, what are you going to pay me? Okay, I want X. You give me X. Fine. Everybody back to work. We got X. Now it's, all right, fine. I'm happy with X. I want the work rules to change. I want the job to be more comfortable or less onerous or less difficult or something like that. That is a obvious sign that you're starting to see labor have an upper hand. Another antidote for you, that's, that's on the union side. The other antidote I'll give you is um, about a month ago, Mary, Daly, uh, Mary Barra, excuse me, uh, the CEO of General Motors came out and said that they General Motors all summer has made a big push that all their office workers need to come back to the office three days a week. They gave up on that because they, they, they were just told, I'm not coming back to the office three days a week. You can fire me if you want. And Nick Bloom of Stanford University, who's done a lot of work on work from home, research on work from home. In fact, WFH, workfromhomeresearch.com is his website. They've done, they do various studies of people. And basically something like a third to 40% of the workforce right now is not going to the office as much as the boss tells them. Boss says, I want you in the office three days a week. They go two. And they basically say, about, well, you can fire me if you want. There's, this attitude is completely changed. And this is a post-pandemic thing. Uh, and what they're finding is very few bosses are firing them because labor is such a tight is in such tight supply. So what I'm trying to give you through some of these anecdotes is labor definitely has the upper hand right now. And I think it's more of an attitude shift than anything else. Now, people listen to me go, yeah, well, that's going to last until the next recession. And then they're going to come crawling, begging back for their jobs. Not necessarily. Then people assign a monetary value to working from home. So in the next recession, when your company's hurting, they're going to tell you, instead of coming to the office two days a week, three days a week, you could come too. And I just effectively gave you a raise because you assign a monetary value to working from home. What's going to get people back in the office is a boom. I'll give you your job here three days a week at home. You come every day, I'll pay you 20% more. That's how you're going to get people back in the office. Pay them not threaten them with a recession. Well, you need a boom to do that. We don't have a boom. So consequently, 9% of, let me back up. There's a partnership, there's an organization called the Partnership for New York City. And they survey Manhattan offices. And in September, I haven't seen the October survey yet, but it hasn't changed much in a few months. 9% of offices in New York City are five days a week. So what does that tell me? Five days a week in the office uh, at a service sector job is done. It's over. Yeah, you could scream and yell and you could stomp your feet and say, no, they're going to come back. They have to come back. No, they're not. We have to start to understand this is a new era. So definitely labor has the upper hand. I agree with that. Gotcha. And, and you know, on that, you know, on that note, um, so, so, you know, is it is it mostly going to um, so the thing about pro labor policies is one uh, you're starting to see wages go up and you know, what channel the, and you know, one of the uh, common areas of confusion that I see, especially on places like Fintuit, is the channel through which uh, wages factor in to, um, into inflation. So, you know, does it happen through higher unit costs or, or higher, unit, higher unit labor costs um, of production for companies? Or does it factor more through not the demand channel now, you know, with a higher wage, you know, people have more money to spend on whatever. And so, you know, that's what drives inflation or is it sort of 
um, is it sort of a two-way spiral where it happens on both ends? I think it's more of a two-way spiral, but if I had to put one over the other, it's about just having more income. Let me just uh, put some numbers on this. Um, according to the uh, uh, BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, in September, the average wage was up 5.1% year over year ending in September. So the average person got a 5% raise in the last year. Um, that breaks down. The Atlanta Fed has a breakdown of that number called the wage tracker. And they say that roughly if you did not switch jobs in the last year, you got about a 4% raise. And if you did switch jobs, you got about a six and a half to 7% wage uh, increase. So there's a premium being put on people switching jobs. So if you need a, if you need employees, the way you're going to get employees is you're just going to have to bid for them. You're just going to have to find somebody in another job and pay them more in order to quit that job and come work for, for you. Now, how does that imply for inflation? The, the simple way I'd like to say it is, if you are getting a 5% wage increase on average, you can pay 5% more for everything. So this is what we mean by the wage spiral. You cannot have at a sustained level 2% inflation when everybody's getting a 5% wage increase, 3% real increase in their income. In fact, if you look at the data over the last 50 years, there's been virtually no increase in real wages, meaning right. after inflation wages. That would be a massive increase of inflation. So what you would need to have inflation come down to 2% for starters is everybody gets a 2% wage increase or thereabouts, not a 5% wage increase. Well, we are bidding for workers. We're paying up for workers. Employees have the upper hand. They're fine with their wage increase. I just want to come back to the office three days a week, or I don't want to do this or that. I don't want to work 14 hours a day, which is what the freight unions are, are, are pushing for. They do have some days more than 14 hours a day. Uh, and so that's really what they're pushing on. So given this upper hand on labor mm -hmm. and given this low sub 4% unemployment rate, uh, I just don't see how wages are going to fall to 2% anytime soon. So if you're getting three, four, four and a half, five 5% wage growth, you can pay those levels of inflation. Got it. Gotcha. And so, you know, and so even with, uh, even if, you know, people make say three and a half, four percent 4% more year after year, you know, the real wage growth is still going to be zero is going to be maybe slightly positive or, you know, very close to zero. That's what it's been the last 50 years. There's really been very li little wage growth. That's why we talk just culturally. Why do we have these populist movements, whether it has been Occupy Wall Street or the Tea Party movement or Brexit or Trump? or the Arab Spring, or any of these other things, because real wages are not increasing. You get a raise every year, but it's equal to the inflation rate, and you can't buy anything more than what you were able to buy in the previous year. The only reason you had any kind of real appreciation is the deflation in some products that you've seen that were imported, say, from Asia or China in particular. Mm -hmm. uh, but that, you know, so what we were talking about is the era of cheap labor is over. I also think the era of cheap goods might be ending as well. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I wanted to touch a bit, of, uh, a bit on that. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the dynamics that Marco Papik highlighted in his book, Geopolitical Alpha, 
was sort of this shift uh, shift of the median voter uh, you know, further to the left. And, you know, typically that implies, um, you know, more dependence on government spending, et cetera. You know, broadly, you know, the dynamic that you highlighted about populism. So, you know, when, when Trump was elected, elected, you know, Trump, you know, by no means was a fiscal conservative as much as he cut taxes. You know, he did not, uh, he did not really, he, he, he did not cut um, government spending at all. And, you know, we're, st- we're starting to see this, the shift towards, you know, additional fiscal spending and, you know, fiscal becoming a more important part of aggregate demand. You know, one of the books that uh, was written about the last 10 years was this one called The Paradox of the Paradox of Risk by Angel Ubide. And essentially the point that was highlighted in that book was that um, ever, you know, since the great, uh, since the great financial crisis, uh, you know, monetary policy by itself, you know, couldn't do much. Um, and, you know, on the end, you also had uh, you know, fiscal policy. Uh, you know, following uh, following a policy of austerity. You know, we're start, we're starting to see the complete see the complete opposite of that happen right now. Um, where where you're not seeing austerity, where you're seeing you know a lot more government spending. And you know, do do you think this sort of a dynamic is you know one something that you need to is something that people need to be worried about? And you know, what are sort of the long run implications of how of shifting more of your aggregate demand towards fiscal and um, you know having having a higher dependence on government for uh, you know a bigger portion of aggregate demand more more inflation when the government spends um that is <clears throat> look at it from a supply demand standpoint if you're going to stuff money into people's pockets and think about the uh, the american recovery act uh, of march of 2021 when we had the 1400 stimulus checks Mm-hmm. You know, though, you know, think about the um, the CARES Act before that in 2020, when we had the $1,200 stimulus checks and then eventually the $600 stimulus checks. We now know with hindsight, what was the first thing that happened with a lot of those STEMI checks is that they got piled into, you know, to just use the vernacular. They got piled into Robinhood accounts and everybody bought meme stocks. And that's why in 2020 and 2021, we had the stock market take off for the moon. Um, led by things like GameStop and AMC and all that other stuff that blew off in this early part of 21. And then we saw that money start to shift and start getting spent. And then we saw inflation take off for the moon, or at least to 9%, which is a 40-year high in inflation. So fiscal stimulus is definitely something that everybody wanted to do. And in the prior pre-pandemic era, you know, we were starting to embrace modern monetary theory. And a lot of other things that suggested that, yeah, we could just we could just spend and spend and spend and hopefully offset that lack of real wage growth with just more government spending. Problem we're facing post-pandemic in 22 as 2023 is approaching is that spending might be the problem and that it is creating more inflation. And we're starting to see that in terms of the pushback and uh, by, you know, the, the Republican Party blaming all of these fiscal spending programs with um, uh, on inflation. We're starting to see that with the population. Um, you know, when you ask people, uh, when you ask people, what are the biggest issues facing the country? Number one is inflation. Number two is the economy and grab bag for some low single digit thing. Third, whatever you want to pick for third, but those are far and away the top two, top two issues. And a lot of that the Republicans are making a lot of uh, inroads on this saying, look, the government spent money like drunken sailors and they pushed up prices and that's why everything is more expensive. So you're starting to see that starting to take hold right now. This idea that fiscal spending is part of the problem 
if we have inflation. It's not part of the solution. It might have been part of the solution prior to 2020 when we had low inflation, no real wage growth, but it is now exacerbating the problem post, uh, post-pandemic. You know, one, one of the things that I wanted to push back there was, so one of the, th- so, you know, uh, you know, one factor that we've observed post-pandemic is, um, is sort of the lack of supply of, st- uh, of stuff like um, refining capacity. You know, we don't have enough refining capacity um, uh, or sort of refining capacity has been a constraint on sort of say the, uh, say the production of petroleum and its related products, or, you know, refining oil, et cetera. And, you know, one of the arguments that, that has come up is, you know, what the government is doing is sort of the wrong kind of fiscal spending. So, you know, as opposed to giving, say, money to consumers to spend, what they really should be doing is, say, investing a bunch of money into um, a refiner, into, you know, building a refinery where, um, or, subsidiz- or subsidizing companies to build refineries so that one, gas prices can come down. Um, and a lot of the supply chain problems that we've seen over the last, uh, over the last couple of years can be eased. And, well, and say, for example, building a refinery. So there's about 130 refineries in the U.S. Um, building a new one costs about $5 billion. Obviously, it takes a few years. However, you know, $5 billion at this point is a rounding error on um, on the balance sheet of the U.S. government. You know, considering the U.S. government spent trillions and trillions of dollars, uh, you know, $5 billion is almost pocket change. And so, you know, on that front, you know, would you, you know, would you agree with the statement that, you know, what the government is doing is sort of it's spending on the wrong kind of thing, you know, instead of subsidizing the supply side, you know, what they're really doing is, you know, giving money to consumers to spend at the end of the day. Yes, I would agree with it, but I would push back and say for the government to, for the Democrat Party to put corporate welfare on the table to subsidize the building of a refinery not only has a 0.0% chance of ever happening, it probably has a negative chance that the mere in the mere suggestion of that by a Democrat will get them thrown out of office, probably impeached out of office. The environmental groups and the progressive wings of their party will have their heads explode. If anything else, the environmental groups and the progressive wings would want the Dem- Democrat party to pass, par- par- pass laws to close every refinery we have tomorrow. So this is the problem with government spending. What you just said is probably correct in what we should do, but there is a negative chance that that will ever get done. Um, And it won't even get done even if we had Republican majorities. We did uh, in the first two years under Trump, and that was never an issue or never came up as an issue as well. But to the larger issue, there is an 8% inflation level. Uh, how does that, where does that come from? Um, you know, how much of that is supply? How much of that is demand? And when you talked about refineries, you know, the way that the, the way that a lot of liberal economists say to what well, the Fed can't print ships, the Fed can't print barrels of oil, the Fed can't print more people. So, you know, they can't do anything about the supply side uh, inflation. I agree. They can't. But that's not the only reason we have inflation. So the San Francisco Fed and the New York Fed have done studies on this. Uh-huh. And they came to very similar results, 8% inflation. Two of it is the structural inflation that we should always uh, have. So there's two. What about the other six? Where's that come from? They actually say that a majority of that is demand, excess demand inflation, like around two and three quarters to 3%. And they, they say, um, I'm, I'm sorry, excess demand is like three to three and a quarter. 
and supply is two and three quarters to three. So a little bit more excess demand. What does excess demand mean in English? We put people, we stuffed people's pockets full of money and they spent, and that's causing three to three and a quarter of inflation. The other three-ish of inflation is the supply chain has got problems. We don't have enough refinery capacity. We've got other supply issues, maybe not enough workers and stuff. That's the other 3%. Now, given that, you know, the people that say the Fed can't print ships, um, they're errant in being aggressive and raising rates. Mm -hmm. Well, they can take 3% inflation out of this economy by being restrictive. And if you believe those studies, and I do, there is a role for restrictive Fed policy here. It's not throw your hands in the air and say, none of this has anything to do with what the Fed does. None of this has anything to do with all the fiscal spending. It's all about the supply chain and the restriction of refineries. That grossly underestimates what is causing inflation. By the way, quick, another tangent for you, quick tangent about inflation. Don Cohen was a Federal Reserve chairman, uh, Federal Reserve governor, excuse me, from 2009 to 2017. He left in 2017, went to the Brookings Institute in October of 2017, so well before any of this, and gave a speech. And in his speech, he said the Fed has no working theory on inflation. And he went on to say that no one has a working theory on inflation. And I think that this is right. And this is one of the hardest things for people to understand. The single hardest thing to do in economics is to tell me where the inflation rate is going to go and why. And so I've got opinions on it, and I'm fully open to the idea that I could be completely wrong on every one of my opinions about elevated inflation. But everybody else thinks, no, no, inflation's easy. You know, it's just too much money chasing too few goods. Watch the supply chain um, and then the growth of the economy, throw it into a cocktail mix, and out comes the equation. And you could predict the inflation rate out to four decimal places. That's what the Fed wants you to believe. That's why Jay Powell was invited to the White House in June. And President Biden pointed at him and says, the job to fix inflation is his job. So he's going to go fix it because he's got all these tools and levers to fix inflation. And everybody believes that. But I think that what everybody has to understand is this is a far more complicated subject. Honest economists, I mean, economists who study this will tell you, you take all of economic history to date and all of the PhDs, and if they're honest, they'll tell you, we don't know what causes inflation. We still don't know what causes it. We have ideas and we have all, and we've had ideas and they've all been shot down and it's a very, very complicated issue. So yes, I could be wrong. But at least I'm open to the idea that this is a very complicated issue. Everybody else, no, no, no. It's very simple to figure out what causes inflation. And that's why we have to raise rates by this much amount or that much amount um, as well. So yes, I think it's very complicated. And I would suggest that some of the studies by the Saint, excuse me, the San Francisco Fed and the New York Fed, that a big part of the inflation is excess demand. And the Fed can do something about that by raising rates is actually correct. And not just to throw your hands in the air and say, well, the Fed can't print ships, so there's nothing they could do, so stop raising rates. Because that was exactly what my um, next question was going to be, because I was going to ask you. Um, so if, if you look at what the CPI, so if you look at the CPI numbers uh, if you, and the breakdown of the CPI numbers, you know, it has mostly revolved around food and energy. And, you know, to a, and, you know now, you know, sort of OER and Shelter Square is playing catch up. Um, with, with the rest of the inflation numbers, but you know, broadly, you know, they 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 can't print food or they they can't print energy, and in a way, um, you know, take take for example the ECB. You know, the ECB has considering that Europe 
uh, Elise was facing um, a very large food and energy shock because of uh, the supply disruption from the Russia-Ukraine war. There, there's not much for uh, a country, like a, a, a central bank like that to do um, in a situation. And as much as, you know, what the U.S. is experiencing is completely different. You know, I would argue that, um, you know, we're still, you know, we're still seeing sort of um, inflation driven by higher food and higher energy prices, just broadly speaking. And and you see that, you know, the, the, the what, you know, what role does the Fed have um, in that sort of situation? Do you still think that um, it's all it's all about, you know, the, the fact that, you know, post COVID we had, you know, personal consumption expenditures go up um, and, you know, go uh, above, you know, the pre pandemic trend and sort of their goal to bring it back down uh, towards. Yeah. I was going to say, let me start off with the ECB. Yes, the ECB is a single mandate central bank. You know, their mandate is to keep inflation down, where the Fed's mandate is to keep inflation down and employment high. So it, it, the ECB, they have been much slower to react to inflation because they've been on this idea, well, it's all supply chain driven and we can't really do anything about supply. You could actually turn it around and say, yes, but you can't. You could stop subsidizing demand. If there's a shortage of stuff, and the price is going up, you don't want to be like California and keep mailing people money. California is mailing people gas money because the price of gasoline is so high in California. And what is the price of gasoline? Do, do you know the price of gasoline in California is making new all-time highs? It's not in the rest of the country, but it is in California. If you continue to pass green policies and you continue to you know, punish West Coast refineries and they reduce supply, reduce supply, reduce supply. And then the price of gas goes up and you say, oh, wow, it's really expensive to fill your car. Here's some money so you can afford it. The price keeps going up because demand doesn't come down. And so, yeah, there is a role you can play even in a supply chain crisis or a supply crunch to try and bring down demand um, as well. So that is definitely a role that the Fed can play. It's a role the ECB can play even though they don't have that mandate that they have to consider trying to get an unemployment as high as possible. And that is where I think we are. But let me come back to something I said earlier. I'm telling you what I think about the long-run view of inflation and cheap goods and cheap energy and cheap labor and exiting and stuff. And I feel comfortable about my views on this. But these are not Chairman Powell's views, because he doesn't tell us what his views are. And it would help if he would, or if Leo Brainerd wants to give a speech and tell us why inflation's peaked and we're on our way back to 2%, and that we're overdoing it with these rate hikes. She could give that speech too, but they're not. So we're left to interpolate what it is that they're doing right now. And I'm interpolating based on my views, because yep. if I was at the Fed, I would be giving that speech about... The secular change has occurred with the, the, the era of the great moderation, which was low, stable employment or low, stable economic growth and low, stable inflation is over. We're in a period of more volatility. I agree with Russell Napier. We don't have to constantly be in a period of job, of expensive labor, more expensive goods, more expensive energy. But it would take a giant CapEx investment to restructure the global economy to get back to that. This idea that we're going to return to normal, which is hold your breath, just wait. Everything will go back to the way it was in 2019. 2019 is done. We're in a new era. This is normal, what we're in right now. Mm -hmm. It is not dystopian. Do not confuse that with being dystopian. I don't think what we're in is necessarily bad. It's a higher inflationary period, 
but it's not catastrophic and it can be repaired through restructuring the economy. But instead of restructuring the economy, we've got people like Jamie Dimon or, or um, Dave Solomon of Goldman Sachs saying, everybody get your ass back in the office five days a week. It's 2019. Nothing has changed. We don't have to change anything. And so we're wasting time in getting about going about the restructuring of the economy. Mm -hmm. And and you know one of the one of the points that you know since you bring up Russell Napier, so yeah, so Russell Napier recently wrote a piece, um, recently gave an interview um, where he uh, and you know sort of titled you know we will see the return of capital investment on a massive scale. And you know, one of the points that you know he talks about is sort of the shift from one um, one the shift from you know free markets to dirigisme, which is the French word for you know uh, additional government involvement within the economy. And the point that he points out is the fact that you know total private and public sector debt is at is in the in the U.S. is at two ninety percent of GDP, and you know this, this is the quote from the interview. And you know the main reason we're seeing that shift is that our debt levels have simply grown too high. You know, at what point does you know U.S. debt actually matter to the U.S. Considering that you know the U.S. has this role as one the global reserve global reserve currency, and you know U.S. bonds are sort of uh, you know, very pristine prime asset for a lot of different, say, pension plans and institutional investors, et cetera, to hold. Well, here I'll agree with the MMTers in that because we are the reserve currency, uh, as you pointed out, we can run much higher debt levels than anybody else can. Um, I don't know what the level is. I will agree with Ken Roboff and Kyman Reinhardt that wrote the book, This Time is Different, a couple of years ago, that once you get your debt to GDP levels are around nine, above 90%, and we did that about six or seven years ago mm -hmm. before the pandemic, that you start to see it drag. All that debt is unproductive, and it starts to be a drag on the economy. Instead of spending money making the economy better, we're just repaying bankers, and we're repaying it. We're repaying um, lenders is all we seem to be doing. And that's where it starts to drag the economy. So I think we're starting to see some of that. You definitely see that in Japan. Their debt to GDP is over 200%. They can't get their economy nominally grow above zero for most of the last decade or so. Uh, and so it is, we're at that point now where it's starting to drag, but it's not going to drag us down in the mud like Japan just yet. So, um, but it is a problem. So if you were to ask me, when does it become a problem? It is now. It's not a terrible problem now, but do we have to wait for it to be a terrible problem before we address it? Maybe we should start addressing it now, but we don't want to address it now. We want to brag as President Biden is, I got the deficit down to just a trillion and a half dollars. That, you know, pre-pandemic used to be a catastrophically large number. <laughs> and now all of a sudden trillion and a half dollars is, you know, reelect me. I got it back down to a trillion and a half dollars, uh, you know, and so th this is how we've 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 moved the goalposts so far with it. So the deficit, yes, it's a problem now. It's not a big problem now. But like I said, why do we have to wait for it to become a catastrophe before we fix it? We should be reining in that 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 because all of that is just massive sucking of 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 uh, resources out of the economy just to pay back lenders and bankers. And it's not to produce more capex or to improve standards of living. Mm -hmm. and, and and you know, going back to going back to the point that you made about the Fed, you know, you said that if you were part of the Fed, or if you know, if you were a governor of the Fed, 
um, you know, you would you you know you would actually give a speech about you know the structural changes that are happening that actually influence the long term trajectory uh, the long term trajectory of consumer prices, and you know, you know, if I was on the government of the Fed, you know, I would just resign. But you know, more, but but more seriously, I wanted to ask, um, you know, my boss, Mike Green, likes to liken what the Fed is doing with interest rates um, to performing surgery with a battle axe, and you know, his broad argument is um, that you know the the fact that you know you have 13 um, unelected people um, controlling sort of the price of money, which is one of which is maybe the single most important price in the economy. And that is sort of giving too much power um, to, you know, to, uh, to a very small um, bunch of unelected people. Um, you know, do, do you agree with that? And, you know, are there any ways you in which you would change the structure of the Fed? Well, you know, let me back up a second. This is public information. What I'm going to say and it's been public for many years. In May of nine, May of 2019, I did have the privilege of going to the White House to interview for a job as a Fed governor. Uh, you know, I did interview with the Council of Economic Advisors uh, uh, or the National Economic Council Chairman Larry Kudlow at the time. He brought in about eight or nine people to interview, and out of that, they picked Chris Waller and they picked Judy Shelton. I thought they, both of those were excellent picks, and it's a f unfortunate that Judy did not get confirmed uh, by the Senate. So when you ask me what I would do as the Fed governor, I, it's a lot closer than you think, because I, I did actually interview for the, uh, for the job. I made that public in 2019, and that has been public for a number of years now uh, as well. But yeah, I would argue that one of the things I did argue at the time was this exact point interest rates need to be more freely traded. That having a bunch of academics set the rate that we have been doing so far. And as I mentioned earlier, basically the chairman telling everybody what to do. Uh, I mean, famously, Greenspan dropped the pretense of that in 2003. At the time, Greg Ipp at the Wall Street Journal wrote a story that the FOMC statement, Greenspan wrote those the night before the meeting. And then, you know, so what was the point of the meeting rather than to just let everybody expel some CO2 because he already decided what they were going to do. And after he got tired of listening to everybody talk, he just pulled it out of his briefcase and says, okay, we're going to do this. Everybody vote on it. And they voted on it and the meeting was over. So yeah, I mean, the way that the Fed operates now, I think is, is not correct. It has led to a number of errors. Most notably was last year's belief that inflation was transitory because they had already set their framework at the inflation rate is going to be 2%. And then when the inflation rate looked like it wasn't 2%, it was, don't worry, it's transitory. And it led to a catastrophic mistake, which they've been trying. As I like to say, this year is the consequence of last year's mistake. I know I'm being nuanced here because a lot of people say the Fed's making a mistake this year. No, it was last year. They should have started raising rates baby steps last year in 21, but instead they waited too long and now they have to do this giant catch up. So this is the consequence of last year's of last year's mistake. So I agree with you that there should be a lot of change at the Fed. And just to finish this thought, Judy Shelton did not make it at the Fed. She had a heterodox opinion. She was an outside the box thinker. She said nice things about the gold standard. There are 19 members of the Federal Reserve Open Market Committee. 12 of them vote on a, on a rotating basis. The other seven attend every meeting and are, uh, participate in every meeting. 
one person, Judy Shelton, was going to hold a heterodox opinion, an outside-the-box opinion. It has been established now that none other than Jay Paul was calling senators to basically sink her nomination because he didn't want her on the Fed. Like I said, could you imagine the Supreme Court, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court calling members of Congress and saying, don't vote for this justice or that justice because I don't want them on the Supreme Court? Well, that's what the, he was doing as well. And it speaks volumes that the institution could not handle one heterodox opinion out of 19. You have 18 people that will do whatever the chairman says. You can't handle one person with an outside-the-box view. It is a weakness of the institution itself and not an indictment of Judy Shelton. So I thought that was a big missed opportunity. Boy, she would have definitely helped if she was there in 21, at least being a voice, because she's been writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal throughout, that mm. she would have been a voice pushing against that transitory narrative last year. But she wasn't there because they don't want people that don't think like them. That's probably why I didn't. That's why I only made it to the White House and no further. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, the, I think, you know, I think that's uh, I think that's very interesting because, you know, uh, pointing out sort of the lack of diversity of opinion, you know, it also points to how um, it also points to why the decision making process within the Fed is sort of one heavily reliant on not just the Fed chair, but also the fact that, you know, everyone is sort of, you know, everyone just is like a yes man, you know, you say yes to whatever whatever Jay Powell says, you know, on that note, you know, one of the last things that I wanted to discuss with you was you mentioned that, you know, it's crazy that, you know, you've got these unelected people, you know, busy setting the interest rate when, you know, the market should be the one uh, setting the interest rate. You know, do you, do you not think, say, one, uh, during the Great Financial Crisis, uh, sorry, during the Great Depression, just before the Great Depression in 1929, um, two, during the Great Financial Crisis, and three, say, during March 2020, when the free market sort of sets the interest rate, what what ends up happening is if you go into a liquidity crunch event, and you know Milton Friedman has talked a lot about um, what happened in 1929, um, how the money supply declined by about one third, etc., and essentially considering that interest rates are just the price of money, all that meant was since the supply of money went down uh, by about a third, you saw that interest rates absolutely spiked. Um, the Fed was created to sort of solve this kind of problem by being the lender of last resort. Um, and this role, and in this role, what they're able to do is they're able to lend out reserves. Um, if no one else is, a, if if you know, if a bank is not able to borrow reserves from, say, J.P. Morgan, no, and no one else is willing to lend to that bank, you know, because they have credit issues or whatever, they can go to the Fed in order to borrow, in order to borrow reserves or whatever, um, to to fulfill their payments, you know, to uh, you know, to settle things out, etc. Um, you know, the, and, you know, within that role, you know, the Fed, the Fed is, the, the, you know, the Fed has that role of, you know, being a being a lender of last resort, you know, do you think the Fed one is going way beyond that role? And two, um, you know, how do you think, you know, events like the Great Depression, the Great Financial Crisis and say March 2020 would play out if the Fed did not have control over interest rates? Well, um, first of all, yes, I do think the Fed is going way beyond their role. Lender of last resort, Walter Baggett, the founder of the Economist magazine back in the in the 19th century, basically talked about that the lender of last resort, as it's understood by most central bankers, is the word last resort, that it's either you give them a loan or they're done. We've got it now as the lender first option. It's the way that we've gone now. We won't let everything exhaust itself before the lender of last resort takes up. And we saw this in 2020. 
And we saw this in 2008. I think what the central bank did under Bernanke in 2008, under Powell in 2020. Or market. Yeah, was was appropriate in 2008. And it was appropriate in March of 2020. But take 2008. He announced quantitative easing in order to get us over that crisis. That was appropriate. Then in, in the spring of 2009, he announced that they were going to taper. And by September of 2009, they were done. September of 2009, they were done with quantitative easing. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I got that. I got that backwards. In September of 2009, they started tapering. And by March of 2010, they were done with quantitative easing. But then the markets wobbled. The stock market fell 20% in 2011. And in August 2011, he went to Jackson Hole and announced QE2. And that continued until 2020 is what happened with that. So and we saw the same thing with what they did during the pandemic. They continued with that till March of this year. So here's what the problem is. When there's a crisis, they do step up as lender of last resort and they do what they need to do. Then they don't stop doing it for like 15 years and it completely gets overdone. You know, um, I used to say, if you want to know what lender of last resort is, if you, I'll give you the analogy of if you've got any kids that you teach them how to swim, you put them in the pool and they're flailing their arms and legs like crazy not to drown. And you just put your two fingers under their chin so they can get a breath of air. That's all you do. And then they figure it out. You don't put them in water wings and in a, in a floaty and make sure that they're all comfortable. That's what the Fed was doing. They need to let the market solve this. So when you ask the question, what would have happened if the Fed was less interventionist in 2008 or in 2020? It would have been worse earlier in 2009 and 10. It would have been better for the next 10 years. Now, when I say better, I don't necessarily, I know a lot of investors will say this, well, it was pretty good. Yeah, if you were a degen, a degenerate gambler betting on stocks, but it wasn't necessarily better for economic growth. That's why we had the Tea Party movement and Occupy Wall Street and Brexit and Trump throughout that whole period, because it wasn't better for them. It would have been better for them. Yes, if we would have had the restructuring of the economy, if we would have not done all of that movement, as I argued before, we need to restructure the economy. It's a post-pandemic economy. Maybe without the Fed throwing $100 billion a day at the market, which is what they were doing by April of 2020, we would have started to realize games changed. Doesn't mean it's worse. It means it's changed. We need to restructure the economy. We would have started it three years ago we would not still be arguing about it now because we think that the Fed's going to throw enough money at everything that we're going to return to 2019. And like I said, I don't think we are going to return to 2019. But don't mistake me for Nouriel Roubini. I am not suggesting that this is dystopian. It's different. It's got higher wages. It's got higher cost of goods right now. But they don't have to be that way. We could restructure the economy to get it back down, but we have to start restructuring it. We have to stop complaining that the Fed's raising rates too much and just start printing money. And don't worry, the inflation rate will magically on its own go back to 2% and just hold your breath. The supply chain will fix itself all by itself. Um, I know people are looking at the falling container rates, thinking that the supply chain is fixing itself. That just means you work on Wall Street. If you actually read the trade publications of uh, shipping, um, you'll find out that it's far from being fixed right now. Uh, and so I think that really 
we need to be start thinking about that, but we're not because we're still hoping that the past will come back. Yeah, I think that's a great place to stop. You know, before we wrap up, you know, do you have, you know, do you have any closing thoughts that, you know, you wanted to share um, before we end? Yeah, just that um, in this, I'm going to diverge a little bit from your boss, Mike Green. Um, in this period of revolving around a restructuring of the economy, I believe that it will mark the return of alpha. I believe it will mark the return of the stock picker. Now, what I mean by that is that it's not going to be, yes, you're right. We have to restructure the economy. So buy XLI, which is the spider industrial index. You don't want to buy every industrial company. You don't mm -hmm. want to buy a manufacturing ETF or an energy ETF. You got to pick individual companies. Some of them will be better situated in this coming restructuring than others. That's what a stock picker does. For the last 25 years, stock picker has been a dirty word. It hasn't worked. I think it will work. I agree with Mike. That doesn't mean that ETFs are going to go away. But I do think what you might see is the resulting outperformance of active managers might go up in the subsequent years. Not now, but in subsequent years as that restructuring takes place. So that if it does, I think that is another sign that the economy is, is, is underway. Because remember, in 2019, we had low stable growth. We had low stable inflation. Every energy company was interchangeable with every other energy company. Every industrial company was interchangeable with every other industrial company. Most of the technology companies were interchangeable with all of the other ones. So just by XLT, the technology index, just by ARC, just by you know the energy index doesn't matter which energy stock you own just own some of them yeah. i don't think that's going to be the case that worked that worked and worked well and i do think that you will see outperformance if you owned industrials manufacturing energy over the next subsequent years but i think you'll see far more outperformance if you find a stock picker that can actually pick the better companies now that i've said that now that i've pumped up all my stock picking friends i'll remind you there are very, very few stock pickers that are any good anymore because no one's had to do it for 20 years. It's a skill set that's nearly extinct. It can be revived, but don't just think that, you know, people, are, yeah, I'm a stock picker. I'm a stock picker. Yeah, well, you've been a stock picker in a beta world where, you know, it's been basically index hugging that has been leading to any kind of semblance of at least at market performance, if not slate out performance, if you can even do that. And so this period is... We're going to need Peter Lynch back. We're going to need those kind of people back. But he retired 32 years ago. Mm. And so it'll be a while before we get those. But it is a different environment coming back. Yep. Yeah. And I'm going to title the interview. You know, Jim Bianco says by XLI. So. <laughs> kidding. Yeah. yeah. Jim, you know, this is a phenomenal conversation. You know, I think it's a great place to stop. You know, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was amazing um, to have the opportunity to interview you. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Market Champions. To never miss an episode, make sure to subscribe and we'll see you next time.